STEM Essential, an Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council podcast. Hear from leading advocates and voices about why STEM education is crucial for our world today and tomorrow. Welcome, everybody, to Season 3 of STEM Essentials, podcasts featuring some of Iowa's and the nation's leading thinkers in STEM. This series is all about vaccine by STEM. I'm Jeff Weld, Director of Iowa's STEM Council, an edgenomic development initiative where education and economic development merge to improve lives and communities. The people we're hearing from are edgenomic developers commingling jobs with learning. Today, featuring Dr. Balaji Narasaman, Director of the Nano Vaccine Institute at Iowa State University, and Anson Marston, Distinguished Professor of Engineering, and Vlasta Klima Balaun, faculty chair in the Department of Chemical and Biological Engineering at Iowa State. How do you fit all that on your business card, sir? Two sides. (laughs) Among his array of accomplishments, Dr. Nara Simon was recently inducted into the National Academy of Inventors. I'm going to quote now from the NIA. For demonstrating a highly prolific spirit of innovation in creating or facilitating outstanding inventions that have made a tangible impact on the quality of life, economic development, and welfare of society. Now that, sir, is exactly the type of person we in STEM are trying to make. So you're a perfect fit. Our topic today is the science and technology behind producing vaccines. Thank you so much for making time for us and welcome. Thank you so much for the kind words and for the introduction. Very happy to be here. Wonderful. Well, let's start by giving our listeners, many of whom are students and teachers and STEM council members and uh, uh, business leaders and nonprofit and policymakers, give them all a chance to get to know you, the journey that brought you to directing this Nano Vaccine Institute at ISU. And I'm sure it began humbly back in high school, probably. And so please share with us some of the significant moments or some of the people who set you on this path going all the way back to your own K-12 experience. Well, thank you. That's, uh, that takes me back quite a while. Um, so um, I was born in India, and I uh, spent uh, the first part of my life until my um, undergraduate degree uh, in India. My father is a geologist, and my mother is an economist. So I was very fortunate to be in a family where, um, where we had STEM in our DNA um, in some ways, and um, uh, also very fortunate to be in an environment where we were encouraged to pursue our dreams um, and uh, and and really go after whatever it is that uh, excited us. Um, so for me, um, it quickly became science and math um, based on uh, sort of what I was reading, um, what uh, what my parents were doing, and uh, and what everybody else around me was uh, was was doing. So. Um, I took that into my undergraduate degree um, experience, which was at uh, the Indian Institute of Technology in Mumbai, um, where uh, I participated in a number of experiences that really underlined to me how engineering could impact society um, in a in a very meaningful way. I had some wonderful mentors um, who taught me all kinds of things about the ethics of doing. Um, engineering research that would be impactful to society. Um, I learned quite a bit about uh, managing time and balancing things as well. Uh, my mentor was somebody who was 
you know, a very good multitasker and, and juggled a lot of balls at the same time. And so very early on, um, I had a wonderful role model um, in that respect. And then after finishing my undergraduate degree, I came to Purdue University to pursue my PhD. So I came from India to Indiana. Um, big change, um, of course. Um, and um, I pursued my PhD in a lab that was focused on um, biomedical research. And that's really where the, the fire was lit a bit in me in terms of um, getting inspired to use um, engineering and, and technology research to, um, to impact medicine. Um, and after finishing my PhD at Purdue, I did a postdoc at MIT. And um, so I worked in two of the most uh, um, well-known laboratories uh, in biomedical research um, and, and had the really good fortune of working with two inspirational mentors um, whose mantra to me was always to work on problems that matter to people. And, and that is a message that I've carried forward and I try to impart to, to my own uh, students uh, as, as I mentor them in their careers. Um, so that's really where sort of my love for science and my um, foray into biomedical research got started. Um, and as I started my own lab, um, I started my career at Rutgers University, and then I moved to Iowa State uh, 20 years ago, um, almost to the day. Um, and so when I started my own lab, I started thinking carefully about where um, impact could be the highest. And so I looked for problems that were hard. I looked for problems that were challenging. I looked for problems that were that required um, what I would call interdisciplinary approaches. I've always um, enjoyed talking to people from other disciplines. Um, you know, they say that the problems at the interfaces between fields are much richer uh, in many cases. And and to be uh, honest, I think for global impact, um, we have to be able to reach out and talk to people who are not um, in in our own fields um, and and try to understand. Um, and, and vaccines is a great example um, of, of, of that kind of an area. And unfortunately, you know, we're learning a lot of that in real time as we're going through a pandemic. But um, those experiences of working in those laboratories and having mentors who reached across and, and worked with people completely outside their disciplines um, sort of took away the fear in me of, of reaching out and, and really instilled in me the confidence um, that uh, talking to people outside your field of expertise is a very good thing. And, uh, and this uh, cross-fertilization of ideas across fields is very important to have global impact. So that kind of led me towards um, using the nanotechnology research that I was doing and applied to vaccines. So for close to two decades now, uh, we have been working in, uh, in terms of creating platform technologies that help us uh, design new ways to deliver medicines and vaccines. And so here we are. Here we are indeed. Your mentor advising you to work on problems that matter to people. This seems to me the bullseye. There is a singular problem that matters more than anything on earth to almost anybody on earth, and that is beating this pandemic. And here you are in the bullseye. And you know, you're, you're speaking of convergence of the disciplines. The work that you do is transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary. There's a lot of euphemisms for this. It's all a hallmark of STEM education. Modern STEM is about transcending the disciplines, converging at the hot spots, the joint uh, intersects between uh, topics. And I was interested by a, a quote I found about you. 
you described your work at one point as, and I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm quoting, an intersection of material science, nanotechnology, and medicine. It sounds like a very complex intersection. Can you break it down for STEM literate, but still learning STEM audience, what you mean by that triad, that intersection? Very good question, Jeff. So um, the you know we're all familiar with you know taking drugs and and vaccines in order to get better when we fall sick or in order to prevent us from falling sick, right? So growing up, um, you know we all remember shots in the arm, and of course we're all getting shots in the arm now as well. Um, and then we also remember popping in tablets and uh, and taking you know medicines to to feel better when we're sick. Um, so that is how sort of medicines have worked in, in the past, uh, of course, due to a lot of excellent research. And what we're trying to do in, in our research is find new ways to make those medicines and vaccines more effective. So, so the first question to ask is, why are they not more effective the way we're doing it now? And the answer to that depends on the problem that you're trying to solve. For some problems, the way we're doing it now is great, and, and we should continue doing that. Um, an example of one where you know we may need some improvements are are in the area of vaccines. Um, right now, we get a shot in the arm, which is uh, typically for that you require a professional to administer that kind of a shot. Right? Wouldn't it be great if you and I and everybody around us could administer that shot to ourselves? Um, so, what is the leap in technology that it would take to to do that? And where can we learn? advances, where can we take advances that have happened in other areas and bring them to, to, to this area? So that's an example of where, you know, a technology like um, nanotechnology could be very impactful in, in helping people self-administer vaccines. So, so that's where sort of the nano, um, uh, part of where the nano work comes in. Materials, um, materials are very important. We see materials all around us. Um, the computer that, that I'm interacting with you um, now um, is, is, is made of interesting materials. The phone that we all carry around and use so much has a lot of materials, new materials in it. The milk can that we use to, to you know, open our fridges and put milk in our, in our cups is, you know, has a lot of materials in it. Similarly, there is the opportunity to use materials that the body is compatible with in order to, again, enhance the effectiveness of the medicine or the vaccine. How? Because as vaccines have evolved, for example, and gotten safer and safer, the type of immune responses that is being required of those vaccines to induce have also become complex. And so we need to stimulate those immune responses in ways that we were not doing so before, largely dictated by the complexity of the diseases that we're facing now as well. And that's where materials come in. So combining the materials with the technology that helps us administer them more effectively and impacting the way uh, those medicines and vaccines help uh, get us back on our feet was really a big um, sort of nexus or, or Venn diagram um, that helps me uh, think about the work that we do. Mm, very interesting. And it's about fresh perspective, that, uh, that transdisciplinary renaissance sort of education that you've enjoyed gives you this uh, perspective of what, why do we, you know, that classic why that children are very good at, but somehow we lose it as adults. You've retained it. Well, it's because I am very fortunate to um, work with quite a few talented people around me, uh, being at a place like Iowa State. Um, I'm, I continue to be inspired by the people around me, the students, the postdocs, the, the collaborators. 
um, who keep teaching me. So as, as we say at a university, you never stop learning. So. Right. I'm sure that goes both directions. So your work, as I mentioned at the outset, has led to a number of accolades, including, of course, the National Academy of Inventors. I, I suspect the answer to this question is going to have something to do with enhanced delivery and effectiveness of vaccines. But can you tell us in layman's terms, what, what have you invented? So the the bulk of our work has focused on better ways to to deliver um, medicines and vaccines, and I can give you a couple of examples of um, of what our inventions have led to um, that have I think a lot of potential. Um, so for let's talk about vaccines first. Um, in terms of vaccines, one of the key attributes for you know vaccines of today and tomorrow is for them to uh, be safe but at the same time um, induce an effective immune response. And as if that is not complicated enough, um, you know, you can add to that the fact that we have diseases around us as we speak that are impacting older adults more than younger adults, for example, right? So, um, so how do you now design a vaccine that is safe, that, is, that works in terms of its effectiveness, but also is something that takes into account um, important factors like age um, and, and other genetic factors that make us humans so different from each other, right? So, um, so, so looking at uh, a complex problem like that, a one-size-fits-all type solution is not going to work, right? So and the flu shot is a good example of that. Um, there have been advancements in the flu shot with respect to how, you know, flu shots work in older adults compared to 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 adults uh, and also children, right? So you have flu mist, which is given to children, and there are different formulations of the flu shot that are given to older adults. So that's a good example of where a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't work. So what we're trying to do, Jeff, in some of our vaccine work is to remove some of the empiricism from that um, whole approach and use our excellent knowledge of underlying science um, to help us design vaccines in a more, what I would call, rational way. Um, and, and to do that, we're using platform technologies, which means they are plug and play. So uh, my kids um, grew up on Lego, working with Legos. And so when I tell my kids uh, about what I'm doing, um, I use the plug and play nature of Legos to, to describe how we're, how we're working on vaccines. So we have components of our technology that are similar, but components of our technology that are specific to the disease or to the target that we're going after. We've spent a lot of time, for example, working on flu vaccines. So when COVID came around last year, um, this plug and play technology really helped us to rapidly expand our insights from flu to COVID. So that's, that's one of the inventions that we have is this plug and play technology in, in vaccines. Um, so, so what it does is it balances the safety, the effectiveness, and the ability to to be tailored for populations that are quite diverse from each other. Now, the second area that I can talk about in terms of an invention that is that is impactful is in what I would call the area of drug delivery. So there are complex diseases that affect, for example, the brain, that um, require the invention of or the discovery of new types of drugs. Um, if you look at neurodegeneration which is a disease that unfortunately 
um, is quite prevalent in our society. And, and, and you know, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's are, are two good manifestations, examples of manifestations of neurodegeneration. So we, we may have drugs or, or compounds that are discovered which might slow down those degenerative processes in the brain, but getting them to the brain is a challenge. So delivery is, is where there is a technical challenge. And, and it may be because, for example, that the drugs may be too toxic uh, to be given to the brain directly, or that they, have to, they don't have the ability to cross what is called the blood-brain barrier. Um, which is a natural barrier that is is there in all of us and that helps keep a lot of things out of our brain for good reason. So in order to overcome, again, these sort of um, uh, uh, cross-acting uh, components, we've come up with ways by which we can deliver lower doses of some of these drugs into tissues like the brain. So that means we, because the dose is lower, we lower the toxicity. And because the delivery helps you get through the BBB, the blood-brain barrier, you you go you you overcome the other barrier. So I would call these Goldilocks problems, um, where you know you can't you, you can't do this side or this side, but you have to have a just right balance of, of a number of things. And so some of these inventions are what I would call Goldilocks problems, which have really helped us in terms of getting the right technology to the right place. That's fascinating. Now let's tiptoe ever so gently deeper into that science for our listeners who, again, STEM literate, but we're far from uh, the level of technical expertise that your inventions dwell in. But we did learn last week, thanks to Dr. Pat Winokur, about the uh, nanolipid vesicles, the fatty bubbles that uh, are really the, vesic the vessel for this vaccine, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. It's, it's the virus's genetic material inside these lipid bubbles that get it to our cells. Uh, how does your uh, platform relate, compare uh, to that, that lipid nanoparticle mode of delivery for Moderna and Pfizer? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, so our technology, our vaccine would also be called, our COVID-19 vaccine would be called the nano vaccine. Um, uh, the difference is, there are a couple of differences. One is, the, we don't use lipid bubbles um, that uh, are currently being used in the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. We use biodegradable materials. So these are plastics uh, that are the, the vehicles or the vessels, as you describe them, to, to carry payloads, which are related to the vaccine, um, into the body. So we use these materials because they are inert and they degrade. So as they go into the body the body breaks them down. And what does the body break them down into? It breaks them down into products that the body can metabolize. So, so it, it takes our biodegradable polymer, it degrades it, and as it degrades it, it metabolizes the degradation components, which means the, the vaccine is gone over time because the body gets rid of it. Now, as these materials degrade, they release a payload that is inside them. And so they degrade slowly, and so one of the differences between what we're doing and, 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 and what the uh, lipid nanoparticle approaches is that our degradation is a lot slower. So imagine, Jeff, um, a piece of candy that you're chewing in your mouth. As you keep chewing and chewing, you're slowly making that candy smaller and smaller and smaller, right? So that's how our nanoparticles work, or a bar of soap. So as you keep using the soap, you're making it smaller and smaller and smaller. 
But as it becomes smaller, it's releasing whatever payloads are inside that. And that brings me to the second difference, is the payloads in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are genetic material, as, as, as Pat described to you last week. Um, the payloads in our vaccine are proteins, so which are specific to SARS-CoV-2. The, 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 the role of the genetic material in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines is that they go into our body and they teach our body how to make those proteins. What we're doing is we're just delivering those proteins directly. We're not relying on genetic technology to teach our body how to do that, but we're delivering that protein in this, which is packaged into this biodegradable plastic. So some of the advantages that our technology has, um, which is, uh, I think, going to be important down the road as we go into next generation vaccines, um, one is we can, because of the slow delivery, we can get immunity, long-term, long-lived immunity in one dose. Um, I think that is that is a very important aspect. The second is um, we can, because of the properties of the materials we use, we can store these materials at room temperature for periods of up to one year. Uh, that is a game changer in my view. We're, we're all learning about the cold chain and the need for CVS and Walmart to invest in negative 80 degree freezers, right, to store these vaccines. Our vaccines will be room temperature stable, which means, Jeff, think about this. You could take our vaccine, put it into an inhaler device, which means you can self-administer it. You don't need a nurse practitioner to, to deliver the, the, the vaccine into your arm. You can put that vaccine, in a, which is in an inhaler, on a drone. And you can deliver that drone, uh, deliver the vaccine with the drone to your home. If you're in the middle of a pandemic, that is a boon, right? Because you don't have to go anywhere, set up appointments, wait for vaccine that's stored cold. You can take a room temperature vaccine that works and gives you that long-term immunity delivered to your home. So if I know how many people live in your home, I can program the number of vaccines to be delivered. And that is the future. I think that's where... You know, if if we have that next pandemic, which again at some point I think we, we're going to have to face that, that is hopefully one of the lessons that we can learn from the current pandemic is is how we can more effectively design new next generation vaccines that'll get to people faster. So so there are similarities. The the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are also what I would call nano vaccines. So that is wonderful for the world of nano vaccines that there's a couple of those that are making a huge difference. Uh, but I think we also have the opportunity to build on those successes and create second, third generation vaccines, which can really, really move the ball further down the, the, the goal, further towards the goal line. Yeah, this is astounding. And I'm sure very exciting to our listeners. It can be administered and stored at room temperature. Uh, the immunity it, it, uh, it, it uh, inoculates is, is longer. It's a one-dose administration. It can be inhaled. Yes, 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 yes. Two, two other questions around that. Is it, as, uh, is it price comparable to Moderna and Pfizer? And is it as effective as 95% effectiveness of Moderna and Pfizer? So um, let me answer the second question first. Um, the effectiveness of the vaccine in humans will only be determined when we get to that point. Um, so far, our, our work is in, in the early stages. Um, so we're seeing in, in preclinical animal models that kind of efficacy. 
um, whether that translates into humans, we'll only know when we're, we're at the point where we can um, study the effectiveness in humans. Um, generally, you know, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have also used the same approach in terms of studying efficacy in preclinical models before going on to humans. Um, and so we're on the same path uh, towards doing that. So in our preclinical animal models, you know, we are seeing the, the type of efficacy that we know our, for example, our flu nano vaccines provide from, from our past work. Now, the second question with respect to the cost, um, the other thing that this pandemic has taught us, um, Jeff, I think is that we need to work both ends of pipelines. We, we can't start from point A and go to point B. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a value chain as you, as you go from basic science to delivering a vaccine. And there's one important lesson we've learned. Um, and as an engineer, this, this is very gratifying to me um, that we are, we are trying to understand how the vaccine is packaged, how it's delivered, uh, and all those things while we are learning about how to design the vaccine. So, so we're not doing this in what I would call a serial way, but we're doing this in a parallel way that helps us think about problems downstream. And this is where the transdisciplinary nature comes in, right? So if you're, if you're an immunologist or a virologist um, working in your laboratory, the last thing you're thinking of is how this is going to be packaged, what's it cost, what's its cost. You're trying to focus on a vaccine that works. But if you integrate that kind of information, how is it going to be delivered? Is it going to be, is it going to need cold storage? How much is it going to cost? How am I going to get it to sub-Saharan Africa and to Greenland at the same time? If you think about those kinds of things while you're designing the vaccine, you can go through this process a lot faster and you can get a much more robust product, both of which are very important during a pandemic. So at least to me, one silver lining has been that we've shown that something like this can be done now. So we're in the process of doing exactly that with our vaccine as well. We're optimizing a process to make the vaccine, to package it, to see if it has that room temperature stability that we're talking about that we've seen in flu. And we're doing that as we're designing the vaccine. So my prediction is it'll be competitive when we complete the analysis. But at this point, we are in the process of doing those studies, so I don't have a direct answer for you yet. That's fair enough. All remains very exciting with great anticipation. The variants are becoming the big story these days. I imagine the way you've described in layperson's terms, this vaccine delivery mode is uh, the proteins of the infective agent enwrapped in a in a, a metabolizable coating over time, and those proteins, I'm guessing, mimic the say the protein spikes on the surface of coronavirus. What about these variants? Do you feel confident that uh, the concoction that your team is dreaming up has somewhat equal effectiveness on whatever the variation might be in the coronas to come? So that's a great question, Jeff. Um... Based on our work in flu, so flu is known to mutate a lot more. Um, and it was thought that COVID may not, but, but COVID is surprising us, or SARS-CoV-2 is surprising us you know, every day, right, as, as we learn newer and newer things, which is not surprising, I guess, from, uh, from the perspective that it's a totally new virus uh, that's been introduced into our world. Um, so speaking about the variants, um, we use multiple uh, payloads in our vaccine. So that's another key difference between our approach and the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Um, though the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines can also easily um, be engineered to, 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 do, to do that, the current versions of those vaccines are not. So what we do, Jeff, is we not entirely focus on the spike protein. We have the spike protein, but we also have other proteins that are related to the virus in our vaccine 
which actually are conserved across those variants. So, so we don't put all our eggs in the spike basket. And by doing that, our approach can cover a lot more um, types of mutations or variants um, that might arise in the future um, than something that's completely dependent on that spike protein. So that means if, this, if there are mutations in the spike protein, which is what we're seeing now, uh, then there could be the potential of uh, what is called immune escape or vaccine escape. Um, but but with, with our approaches, and I, I'm sure that next generation vaccines also from Pfizer and Moderna will be able to fix that going forward. Um, but but our approach already accounts for that. Mm-hmm. It, the million dollar question I'm sure everybody's thinking is, what is your timeline for public release, safe, full expansion of delivery of, of your vaccine model? So we're marching towards, um, you know, doing our preclinical studies um, on this uh, uh, on this research. The research is highly collaborative. So we have partners. Uh, University of Iowa, uh, where Pat uh, is from, um, has one of the world's top experts on coronaviruses, which is uh, Dr. Stanley Perlman. Um, so we collaborate with immunologists um, and, and uh, Dr. Perlman at the University of Iowa. And we are also collaborating with companies that are helping us scale up that process um, and, and, and study how these vaccines can be delivered to both small and large uh, animal models. So we have collaborators at the University of Wisconsin um, who are experts in working with non-human primates, for example. Um, so there's, there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle that, that, our, uh, that our Nano Vaccine Institute is bringing together. Um, so we're going through those steps as, as we speak. Um, I don't know if I can give you a, an exact date um, in terms of when this will be ready for "quote unquote" prime time, um, but given that these variants are coming now, Jeff, my my guess is that we'll probably need annual boosters or or something, um, you know, akin to that um, in in the future. And so, by the time we are ready for those kinds of boosters, we're hoping to uh, make more progress, at least in our preclinical work, so that we get it to the point where. We can approach the FDA and, and show them the, the data that we have in our preclinical animal models and start the process for getting permission to test this in humans with clinical trials. So my hope is for, for that to happen over a time frame um, where some of these booster shots will be required. I'm sure we will all look very much forward to the day we can just order an inhaler from Amazon and it arrives at our door and we inhale the vaccine and we're good to go. That is how we're going to deal <laughs> with the next pandemic. And at least that's our goal. Very exciting. You know, speaking of money, uh, I hope that I know that our STEM audience and most Iowans are quite well aware that research laboratories at our universities are enormous economic engines and they benefit all Iowans. Your lab, for example, draws funding from the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, the Department of Defense, the USDA, private sources. I want to ask specifically about the CARES Act funding. Our governor's very pleased that the CARES Act funding has been able to has been channeled in your direction. Can you tell us specifically about what what that money means in particular in terms of advancing your cause? Yeah, that's a great question, Jeff. And uh, the CARES Act funding was was absolutely critical in enabling us to get our COVID-19 nano vaccine to the point where I'm able to talk about it now. Um, So the data that we have, which shows that we are able to um, in a, in, in, in a, you know, design a single-dose vaccine that has that long-lived protection um, that is room-temperature stable and that works effectively um, in these preclinical animal models 
um, it could not have been possible without uh, the CARES Act investments uh, from, from, from the governor's office. Um, as I mentioned to you, simultaneously, we've also worked with Iowa-based companies in order to um, increase the quality of the manufacturing um, of the various components of the vaccine, as well as with other partners that have helped us to deliver this vaccine through an inhaler device to, to develop a process that the FDA will find acceptable in order to manufacture the vaccine. So without this investment from the CARES Act, um, we would not have uh, been at the point where we can start now dreaming bigger and, and seeing if we can uh, take, take this foundation um, that we have from the CARES Act and, and, and do the type of studies that, is, you know, that are going to be necessary to get this vaccine um, to the point where we can go to the FDA and, and ask for permission to do clinical trials. So this is, um, um, you know, investments like the CARES Act uh, support from the governor's office um, are a big driver of the kind of research we do. And so we're extremely thankful and grateful um, that we had this opportunity to, to work on this kind of work. Uh, it is the human equivalent of a moonshot. And uh, we're so grateful that you are the human equivalent of an astronaut blazing trails in, in this physiology space. It's, it's, it's the team. Certainly. Certainly. In fact, speaking of your team, let me let me close out with a final question, circling back to students, which is the mission of our STEM councils, K-12 student inspiration and preparation to follow in, in pathways like yours. So is there advice that you would care to offer young Iowans who are inspired by this pandemic to aspire to careers like yours or those on your team? You know, being at a university, um, you know, instilling the the excitement of, uh, of uh, how science can impact um, our lives um, is something that we, we, we strongly believe in and that um, you know, we try to implement every day. Um, Iowa State has, uh, you know, I don't know if you, if you are familiar with this, Jeff, Iowa State's motto is science with practice. Um, so I, 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 I wake up in the morning excited to, to come to work um, every day. And the reason is that, you know, the type of work we're doing can, can help better lives. Um, I, I can think of no better motivation um, than, than that. And it doesn't matter what kind of work you're doing. Um, if you can, because of your work, have even a small impact on, on our, 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 our life, um, our lives. Uh, to me, that is that is the biggest kind of driving force that that you can think of. Um, so, in particular, um, this pandemic has has incredibly challenged our our world, right? I mean, there's so much that has changed in the last um, you know 13, 14 months, um, and 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 but there's so much we've learned about how you know we can bring advances in STEM, we can bring advances in technology in such a way that, that we've adapted. And to me, that is another key, key aspect of, of, of what students and, and look, students themselves and my kids are in middle school and, and, and the adaptation that they've had uh, in terms of going through an experience that they have had in, in the last 12 months is, this is incredible. And, and I would not have dreamt that we could adapt so quickly in such a short time, uh, but that's 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 what you know. You you you're dealt with with the cards you are, and and you have to adapt. And to me, you know, 
STEM education is, is a great enabler of that kind of adaptation. And it teaches us things that we would never have um, thought of doing before. But it also shows us that if we, if we think in those directions, you know, how much we can push those boundaries. Um, and so, again, um, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be at a, at a university and working with colleagues, students, uh, postdocs, um, collaborators, um, and, and leaders who, are, uh, who, 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 who enable the environment for us to be able to be successful in these pursuits. And, and I, can, I can say now, Jeff, that when I started 20 years ago, much of this was a dream. And, and I am living my dream. Um, and and what's enabled me to do that is 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 is, is STEM and and the ability to attract new talent to this and learn from them. This is I this I cannot emphasize more. This is a two way street, um, and I proudly tell my students when they graduate with PhDs that um, they have taught me more than I have taught them. And to me, that's almost a barometer of of when they can graduate. Um, because because they bring fresh ideas, they bring new ideas, they bring thinking that I cannot because I'm too close to to what I'm doing in many ways, and and to me that is one of the one of the beauties of of working in a field like this where there's no stopping in terms of the learning, and and if students can see that inspiration about how their work, and it, it doesn't matter whether it's immunology or or, or biochemistry or or, or engineering, um, or, or something else, um, economics that they're working on, um, you know, computer science, data science, there's just so much. And, and the social aspects of, of, you know, bringing these technologies to the, to the, to the, to the, to the world um, are, are extremely, extremely important problems, and I think worth um, working on. And, and it's that kind of driving force that, uh, that again, keeps me going and and uh, and every morning i'm i'm excited to do that well you paint an inspiring picture that uh, paints a picture of stem education as difficult times to get there obviously there's rites of passage that uh, students need to power through whether it's mathematics computer programming um, the sciences but it's a it's an interesting it's fulfilling and it's a rewarding way of life and it constantly throws new challenges at you. So there's no, uh, you know, there's, there's, the fun is always going on. <laughs> yeah, never gets old. I love it. Thank you. Dr. Balaji Narasimhan, Director of the Nano Vaccine Institute at Iowa State University. Thank you for educating Iowa's STEM community on the astounding work that you and your team are doing to help our species outcompete the microbes. We're all cheering you on. Thank you so much. Thank you again for having me, Jeff. And it was a lot of fun talking to you. Our pleasure. This has been episode three of our third season of STEM Essential Podcast, featuring the voices of edgenomic innovation, presented by the Iowa Governor STEM Advisory Council and sponsored by AccuMold, world leaders in precision micromolding, headquartered right here in Ankeny. Thank you for listening. Today's and all STEM Essential Podcasts are available at iowastem.org forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to STEM Essential. This podcast is generously co-sponsored by Collins Aerospace and Mid-American Energy, proud partners of Iowa STEM Council. To learn more and find resources, please visit iowastem.gov. 